If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? I hope the head is all right after the Christmas and that you didn't have unnecessary rows with people that you actually quite like. But the Christmas Do you have day, rows every year, Mac? No, there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of familial tension in one Element of the family, let's just say. One yeah. element. We won't go into this. Heightened, uh, heightened by the Christmas festivities. Heightened by, I think. And alcohol. Booze. Yeah, heightened by booze and too much proximity to each other. Right? <laughs> uh, both physical and emotional proximity. And I suspect that it's a sort of a, it's a sort of a, an annual bash. And I don't think we're unique. But maybe we are. But I don't think we're unique in that. So I'm always trying to preach, you've got to find your inner Gandhi at Christmas, your inner Zen. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to do a bit of yoga, give people a bit of headspace, just kind of um for a while and all will be good. So on Christmas dinner, I'm usually sitting there at the top of the table, slightly looking into the distance, slightly Gandhi-like, Zen-like. Thousand yard stare. (laughs) All that sort of stuff. Anyway, all is good. But I want to talk to you about... Pub licenses, the economics of licenses, and why Ireland is blackguarding itself with our approach to how we socialize. Now, I know that this Christmas mm-hmm. has been weird as hell, like last Christmas. So we've had yeah. all the restrictions, but the restrictions have focused my mind on beyond restrictions in the sense that once COVID passes, if it passes, okay and we open up again, let's look at the restrictions on socialising because humans are social animals and Irish are extreme social animals, right? We love to go out. We're very gregarious. We like chatting. We like drinking. We like staying up all night, all that sort of stuff. And you look at our licensing laws and they are so restrictive. And it's always struck me as why can you not set up a bar to serve booze to who you want to when you want to, where you want to. Because most of the things you can, if you want to set up a shoe shop, you can open whenever you want. You can sell to whoever you want. Yeah. At whatever price you 
makes sense to you. And you can open day or night. Nobody cares, right? Whereas, yeah. like, so think about it. So why in our country, and again, I, I look at this, two things happened over Christmas. One was I was reminded on Twitter about the Ormond Printworks, which was on Ormond Key. It was a big printing works, which was yeah. turned into a big rave when I was a young fella, right? And it was a really proper sort of London, New York club. Very, very it. out there. I yeah, remember, I remember it, right? yeah. And of course it's gone now. Right. And so much of Dublin's and I'm talking about Cork, I'm talking about all of the country's cities. So much of the public space has been so commercialized now that, number one, there's no nightlife. Not for us. We're too old for this carry on. But still, I wouldn't (laughs) mind going going to a gig late at night somewhere. Right. But for the kids, you know, there's there's nowhere for them to go late at night in Dublin. Everything's far too expensive. Uh, The clubs aren't any good. There's very, very few of them left. There's no sort of underground venues. And I remember this summer being just around, around traveling a little around, around the continent, and every single city had this incredibly vibrant nighttime economy. And the nighttime economy is different to the daytime economy, but it's absolutely essential that for a city to be a real thriving, perfectly living organism, it has to live 24-7. That is the nature of cities. And what we've done in Ireland is we've closed them down completely. But the one city that kind of goes against the grain that I always thought was a bit peculiar is London. It's a shit London city. Had, yeah, London's had, had shit really restrictive life. laws. Yeah, yeah. Not only that, but the Brit is a terrible man for serving you a gargle at 5 to 11. Yeah. And then opening the doors and roaring at you to finish that gargle. Yeah. So and London, swiping it off the table. Yeah, it's draconian. <laughs> but London, we have inherited British laws in this, right? And we'll go, we'll, go, we'll go to the legislation in a minute. But mm. the problem is that if you impose severe restrictions on licensing laws, two things happen. One is the quality of the product, i.e. the nightlife, collapses, because there isn't anyone. Yeah. Because, because you have to go to the existing pubs, number one. And the price of the commodity goes through the roof. And I'll explain that. So if you think about Ireland, Ireland has the most severe licensing laws now in Europe, where the, the Brits are out of Europe. So we open for less long, less days all year, right, than any other place, right? And once you put a restriction, and once you say you cannot serve booze because you need a license, what actually happens is the amount of, it's a, basically we come back to this idea, John, of supply, right? This is all about the supply of the economy. Supply, mm. supply, supply. If you restrain supply in economics, what you do is you destroy the market and you give super normal profits to the people who have the licenses. So if you look at what's the story in in Ireland, you can't leave your house at one in the morning and go for a drink here. You could do that in almost any other city in the world, right? You cannot set up a bar on the corner of the street here. You can do that in any other city in the world. And of course, you think, what is the upshot of that? The upshot is that the economy stops at about 11 or 12 at night. Now, if you think the 24-hour economy is good for tax revenue, for opportunities, for creativity, for the vibe, stopping the economy in its tracks and legislating for that makes completely no sense at all. And a good way of thinking about it is, Jonas, do you remember years ago there were taxi licenses? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And the taxi licenses were, you needed a license in order to drive a cab. 
and the Taxi Drivers Association. And I know this because I used to be a, uh, I used to present the news, the news talk breakfast show yeah, yeah, yeah. during the period <laughs> when there was deregulation. And we'd have these lads on for the taxi drivers and I would just, it was just, they would talk nonsense, right? But their idea was the license was essential to preserve the integrity of the trade. And if you deregulated the taxi licenses, right, you would have a worse service. Now, what has actually happened, as we know, there are now more taxis on the road, more people take taxis into more areas, the product is cheaper, and thousands and thousands of people earn a living out of taxis that were never allowed to earn a living before. And you don't have those massive queues at, at uh, closing hour. Precisely. So you will remember Dublin at closing hour. You'd wait for hours. Actually, we used to walk home. Yes. We'd yeah, walk yeah, home. walk home. No, yeah. Absolutely no way of getting home, right? And of course, the taxi drivers at the time said, oh my God, if you deregulate the taxi industry, the service will get worse. No, if you deregulate the industry, the service will get better, right? But the owners of the license will lose money because it's the license that was actually generating the income. So what you have is you've a captured market, totally captured market. So much so in the taxi cases, there used to be drivers called Cozies. Do you remember them? And the Cozy was a fellow who rented the taxi license from the taxi owner and worked as a sort of a a bonded slave in the middle of the night trying to pay off. Exactly the same thing happens in pubs here because publicans now, many publicans rent out their premises to bar managers and don't even run the bars anymore, safe in the knowledge that the bar is protected by the license and the bar manager cannot open up next door in his own premises. Whereas a properly functioning market would say, the bar manager could say to the public, and you know what, I'm not going to work for you anymore. I'm going to take my chances in the market and I'm going to open up beside you. In the UK, though, there was that system where it was the brewers that owned most of the of the pubs and bars around and therefore would only serve their particular brand of beer. So there was very few independent As they used uh, to call it, free houses. That's what they used to free call hands, them. Yes. Free yes. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But what actually worries me now is the likes of Witherspoons coming into Ireland. Well, and, I'm, and I'm not worried about them as long as everybody can come in. The problem with Witherspoons is Witherspoons can only buy existing pubs. Why can't they buy the shoe shop that's closed down? Or the post office that's closed down? Or, for example, all the bank buildings that have now been shut by Ulster Bank and Bank of Ireland, turn them into bars. But let them open 24-7. Allow people, treat people like adults so that young people have places to go at night and we have this nighttime economy. So you've got venues, you've got theatres. What do you mean? You mean that our young people would be out all night? Absolutely. Carousing and boozing? Absolutely. Yeah. So treat people like adults and they'll behave like adults. Treat people like children and they'll behave like children. At the moment in Ireland, what we have is everyone's thrown out at 11 or 12, or let's say 2 a.m. from second-rate nightclubs. Everyone's on the street. Everyone's tanked up because of this idea that you can't get another drink. Right? Looking for taxis. Looking for taxis, looking for buses, all that sort of stuff. Whereas if we actually planned a 24-hour economy with a public transport service that went all night, the taxi services that went all night, with bars that if they wanted to close at 12 p.m., they could. If they wanted to close at 8 a.m., they could. What you would do is you would segment the market into the various different age groups in particular, or party yeah. types, right? So the people who want to stay out really late at night, they can. People who don't. They can. People who want to serve 
food in their bars, they can. People who just want to serve vodka in their bars, they can. And basically what you do is you segment the entire market to reflect the demography. And you take the idea of the taxi driver's bullshit, which it was, Mm. and you say, and the reason we're having this conversation now, John, is that the licensing laws are coming up for renegotiation in the next month. So it's incumbent on the David McWilliams podcast to agitate for deregulation in licensing laws. <laughs> open all hours. <laughs> open all hours. No, because, it, you know, because that's the, that's the way in which, and, and I, the other thing that happens is then you get a street where you have an established pub, two established pubs, right? Yeah. Amazingly, John, the value of those pubs is worth much more than the value of the buildings where there are no pubs in it. So the building where there's a pub in it, you can sell for twice as much as the building. There's no pub. Why is that? Because the pub is the captured market. So all the returns accrue to the people who own the existing license, which is why if you wanted to open a pub tomorrow, the people who would actually be the nimbiests, the people who would go against you, the people who would complain are not Joe Public, because Joe Public doesn't bother if there's a bar in the corner. It's actually the people who own licenses. So you, if you talk to any restaurateur, right. yeah. if you talk to any restaurant that has tried to open a restaurant with restaurant licenses, which is kind of a way around, they'll always get applications against them by existing pubs. Because the more you choke the market and the more you actually have the monopoly on supply, the more the value of your asset, the pub goes through the roof and the more the consumer pays. So this is basic economics. And we have to attack this from the economic side. And then you look and you say, well, where did these laws come from? That's the other question. Well, actually, just before you go there, you know, there is that whole thing about you talking about regulation. People have this amazing ability to work around restrictions and regulations. For instance, I remember telling you the story uh, on the podcast quite a while ago about my mother telling me the story of the Three Mile Pub because pubs in the centre of the city close at 10pm. Everybody got in their cars. I know. (laughs) And and drove out three miles out to the Goat Grill or to, you know, three miles outside and continued on drinking till, I don't know, midnight or, or whatever it was. And then drove home afterwards. Well, let me take out the driving bit, okay? Yeah. But the idea is, again, why work around regulations if we don't need the regulations? Yeah. If the regulations and the license system profoundly enriches the existing holders of the license, meaning that they have no incentive to change because they're doing well, thank you very much, it shuts out all new incumbents. So, for example, when I look around, 22, 23, 25-year-olds, they should be opening their own bars for their own mates. They shouldn't be waiting for a 70-year-old publican to actually create the nightlife. You should say, let's open it all up and let's go for it. And if you're 25 or 26 and you've seen a bar in Berlin or if you've seen a bar in Madrid, you say, wow, that could work in Dublin, go for Mm. it. You know, and stop, again, enriching the very few and penalizing the many. And then you think, where did these laws come from? Amazingly, John, all these laws are Victorian. Did you know that? Do you know, I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me though either. So our licensing laws are based on the foundational act, which is called the Licensing Act of 1872. 
right? right. This is where it goes back Jesus to. Jesus Christ. And this is, where we, this is where we and the Brits are quite similar because the laws were originally British laws. Yeah. And they came at a time when there was a huge moral and cultural war between the temperance society and the publicans. Mm. So at the time, there was a huge move in Victorian Britain, actually all over the world, for temperance. Okay. One of the great temperance. So, you know, for example, you've got people. All the Holy like, Joes. Holy Joes, but you've also people who felt that the booze industry was really preying on the poor. And ultimately, it was a moral act. And you had to censor the way in which people behaved because we couldn't censor ourselves. So this, mm. was a, this was a huge Victorian movement. And of course, it fed into politics. And of course, politics reacts as politics does, which is siding with the most powerful voice. And the temperance movement were also a huge electoral movement because they were based on Christian churches. And Christian churches were very, very good at galvanizing their people into voting for X, Y, and Z. So what you had was this temperance movement driven by the churches, ironically. And I say ironically because most priests I've ever met have always been partial to a few gargles. Mm. And it is what actually came out in the legislation. So our legislation is all based on 18... I'll read you a bit, right? The 1871 Act restricted the closing times of pubs to midnight in towns and 11pm in rural areas in Ireland. It clamped down on granting new licences, and whoever wanted to set up a bar had to be vetted by the local magistrate to be of good character. And in order to enforce this, Irish pubs were forced to go by the name of the publican. So O'Neill's, O'Brien's, Whatever. Nowhere yeah. else in the world is a pub named after the family. Nowhere else in the world. But what, Only what in Ireland. The, what was the point of that? To shame you. So if you had an establishment that was actually rowdy and full of degenerates, your family name would be Muck. That's what the right. whole point was. Yeah. Oh, those fellas down in O'Brien's there. Yeah, yeah. and that O'Brien family, McKenna's, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but Ireland's the only place. So that's another thing. And then, of course, it's updated the 1902 Act which is even right. more restrictive, right? Which prohibits the issuances of any new licenses for sale of booze. Now, of course, that means if you owned the license, suddenly the value of your asset goes up because right. it's restricted. Okay. Yes, it's course. completely restricted. Yeah. And then the Intoxicating Liquor Act of 1924 and 27 went further by imposing these dry hours at the holy hour and all that sort of thing. The holy hour. Yeah, do you remember there was the holy hour? And of course, the, the Greek joke was the fella standing outside the pub waiting for the pub to open during holy hour. And the publican says, I should come on in, have a drink while you're waiting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it's, I mean, my granny owned a pub in West Cork and it was yes, jammers. Yeah. Jammers, because she was very liberal in her interpretation of the holy hour of a Sunday afternoon between <laughs> two and four. And there was fellas in there that should have come down and be there all day. But yeah, the I unholy hour. The unholy hour, yeah. But I come back to you know, these, all these restrictions are really ancient. Now, what happens is rents go up when you restrict, prices go up when you restrict, competition collapses, and you destroy that part of the economy that is the nighttime economy. Now, if we had an entirely geriatric population, that would make sense because people don't really go out and you get older that much, right? Mm. But we don't. We have the youngest population in Europe with the most restrictive bar legislation in Europe. The only people who gain are the vintners. And the vintners are like a restricted guild, like a big trade union for people who serve booze. And the idea that they're an objective force that represents the public is total wrong. 
They simply yeah. represent themselves. And would you imagine in the Doyle, how many publicans are TDs? Don't know. Second only to teachers are publicans. And lawyers. Really? So they're all in part of that sort of idea because the publican was the local sort of strong man, had a few quid, tended to be a big man in the town, etc. Well, he was so the centre of, of the town, yeah. So yeah. he would have the ear of the local, and the as, local he's pulling a, as he's pulling a pint. Precisely. So what you have is basically a heist against the consumer, right? And this destroys the clubbing economy. You see, if you talk to any young people, John, people in their 20s and 30s, they'll say, Ireland is awful. There's nowhere to go. There are no Mm. venues. And we have strangled these venues. So ultimately, John, we have 19th century legislation governing a 21st century economy. And everybody loses except the people who own the license, who actually get super normal profits and destroy the potential of the 24-hour economy in our cities. And if we want our cities, you know, you hear all this thing, we want the cities to be livable. We want the cities to be full of life. We want the cities to be vibrant. We want them to be cultural hubs. We want them to be creative. We want them to be full of the types of individuals that create something different and are innovative. If you tell all those people at 11 o'clock, go home to the suburbs, you destroy the potential of the place. And then... All that happens is you turn Dublin into a sort of, not just Dublin, but the rest of Ireland, into a sort of Disney theme park Irishness, right? Yes. So you build hotels and you say, come in, we're great crack. But the great crack is just simply for tourists. It's not for us. Yeah. And yeah. whereas when you go to big cities or small cities around Europe, what you find is a much more liberal, relaxed, tolerant, open, and ultimately much more vibrant social scene. And that's what we need. Just from the economics alone, this would make a profound difference to the tax base of the city. And then you could provide better services in the city. It seems to me to be a total no-brainer. But you know, the, the thing about it is, it's, it's like the regulators are a little bit scared of themselves and of the public. You know, my God, if the pubs are open all night, people would be drunk all night and they'd be out carousing all night. And that's Bullshit, there's, as you and I no, know. There's no, there's no evidence of that. In fact, if you talk to publicans in private, publicans in private don't want pubs to be open until 5 or 6 a.m. And the reason is the following. People slow down their drinking. That is the fact after 12. Yeah. Slow down our drinking. So publicans want bars to be open where the maximum amount of money is taken at the till. Now, I understand that. But the idea that a late-night economy is a drunk economy, is not the case at all. Much more likely is a constrained economy, which says get all your gargle in between now and half 11 because the bar is going to shut. It's Mm. much more likely to be a drunk economy. So publicans, existing publicans, don't want pubs to open late because their profit margins fall off. And that's why, therefore, you have to have new, what I would call entertainment entrepreneurs coming in and saying, look, we'll take less profit margin, but we'll re develop this derelict building, or we will get this old part of the city and we will infuse it with more life. And you mm. know what? Because we're paying less rent, we don't need to make more profit. And it's all this nexus between rent and profit. And the problem is that licensing pushes up rent, not down rent. And as long as you have licenses, you have nodes of higher rents, which drag up all the rents around. And what we need is lower rents, 
then you can serve less booze, then you can have late night venues, which are not necessarily booze related. And in fact, yeah. John, we're going to talk to somebody who is looking at social change, looking at actually the way in which the younger generation are drinking. And he's got a lot of interesting things to say about how younger generations are not drinking as much as older generations, which would again add a moral argument to the argument of later licensing laws. Because if you're worried about people drinking and then it transpires that young people aren't drinking that much, well, then the moral arguments go. So John, we were talking there about clubs, bars, nighttime, basically trying to make our urban economy mainly, I'm talking about mainly the urban economy, fit for purpose, reflecting what the social trends are in the world and what's going on. Yeah. And now we've got somebody who thinks about this stuff all the time because Viv Chambers is the founder of a company called Bricolage. It's, kind of, it's an Irish cultural insight, innovative agency that looks at cultural changes and tries to see what's actually going on. Now, this guy's claim to fame is the following. There is a product called White Claw and White Claw took, think about this, 10% of the U.S. alcohol market in five years from nowhere. And it was based wow, on yeah. his insights into how younger people were actually drinking. So he's Viv Chambers, Dublin guy. Let's go and talk to Viv. Viv Chambers, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, good to see you, David. Now tell me, Viv, you are involved in an area that I find fascinating, futurology, talking about the future, predicting trends, seeing where things are going. Tell me, first, before we talk about next year and the year after, or even even the decade, right? Tell me, how do you, what do you look at when you're looking to plot future trends? What do you look at? Well, David, I, I think we'd make a distinction in, in bricolage between uh, futurology or crystal ball gazing, I guess, as, as we, we jokingly call it, and foresight. Yeah. So for us looking into the futures, I think people kind of can smell the, or call out the BS on that. You know, the minute COVID arrived, a lot of those futurology decks that you get sent in various organizations kind of went in the bin. But certain trends were happening before COVID that yeah. amplified during COVID and will continue after COVID. So in our in our line of work, we're, we're always looking for signals that are probably relatively weak now. They're blipping weakly on the radar, but we think there's something in them. And that signal is, is growing in strength. Zoom Pints wasn't blipping before COVID. You know, during COVID, it blips like crazy in the first lockdown, and it's gone. Thankfully, yeah, thank yes, thankfully, thankfully, yeah. That was that was one of, one of the worst one of the worst. But in terms of <laughs> in terms of when you're looking at you know, so take for example, economics will say we're going to look at demography, we're going to look mm -hmm. at the cost of capital, right? Yeah. The rate of interest. We're going to look at trade flows. We're going to try and look at investment flows. And we're going to try and get a sense of the zeitgeist, what's going on, right? These are sort yeah. of very general things. What do you guys look at? Because I can, I can do it from the economic side. I can forecast from the economic side with a certain a bit of accuracy, not a huge amount, but a certain bit. What do you guys look yeah. at? What are you looking at when you're, when you're trying to get a sense of where consumers are going or where the world is going? Yeah, like I, I, what you've described is, is, is a macro view, and we definitely consult macro sources of information, but, but our activity is, is very qualitative. I, I think our data is granular. It's, it's deep data rather than big data. What we tend to do is seek out, it's usually a community or culture, right? A group of people that are doing something interesting or different that is starting to, to make waves or have, have influence. What we do is we find people that are living in the future already, 
you mentioned the word zeitgeist, which which means I think the spirit of the times. Yep. Well, usually the people that are def- defining the spirit of the times were, have already been there for a couple of years. They've been so waiting for the rest of give us. Give me to an arrive. example. What is going on now? What what are you seeing that 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 we should be all aware of in terms of, as you said, the kind of mavens, the early adopters, people who are changing. What what are the big trends? There's so many. I, I suppose one one to pick on is there's a huge trend again amplified by COVID around comfort, nostalgia, coziness, bright colors, dopamine, right? People looking for dopamine hits. So I think, I think that's, that's something that's, that's, that's persistent over time. John regularly uh, looks for dopamine hits. I am sure he does. He's dopamine addict. He's binging over there. Speaking. You know, there's a fascinating culture emerging, particularly in the US around what we call no and low alcohol, which I think is fascinating. Explain that to me. No and no and low alcohol is a trend towards people choosing less alcohol or no alcohol or balancing out their alcohol consumption in their in their overall repertoire and their overall behavior. But actually what it's about is a new generation of young people coming through whose social focus it looks beyond bars and getting drunk at the weekend. They're looking for opportunities to grow, to develop other aspects of their experience. And, you know, this we love this phrase, extend your weekend. I think they're looking for their weekend to endure and to go on and have great memories. And that doesn't really square with, I guess, my generation waking up with huge jitters on, on a Monday after a bender over mm-hmm. the weekend. It's a different culture. So there are pioneers in that culture that are inventing new new products, new brands, new ways of socializing that we are paying a lot of attention to. And where, where does this drive come from? How come younger people have changed their attitude towards alcohol? Well, you know, there are lots of factors to this, but I think a key factor is, you know, it, it, they're at a nexus of, of several trends, including healthy lifestyle. So the healthy lifestyle trend has been going on for, for much longer. Mm. I would argue that the primary driving engine of this change is social media and how you present yourself as a brand, a personal brand online. So people are, are incredibly conscious Jeez, of themselves. Jonathan, it's a good job that wasn't when we were kids. Well, that we yeah. didn't have social media. Oh, it would have saved us. Could you imagine the brand we'd have presented at the age of 21? <laughs> no, isn't that true, isn't it? It would be mortifying, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. John's already mortified. I'm mortified about myself. Morto. Morto. So I, I would say social and your, your personal brand is the driver of, of, that, of that trend primarily. But there's other factors too, like healthy lifestyle and gyms and all that kind and of thing. And is price a factor as well, given the fact that they're introducing minimum unit pricing for alcohol? I, I think, I think to be honest with you, pricing is not a, not a strong lever. It, it doesn't seem to be a feature here because these kids are, are spending a fortune on other experiences. What are they spending on? So like, what is the difference between these Gen Zs and millennials and then decrepitudes that we are, John? We're in the decrepit age. So <laughs> just tell me what's the, what's the difference in spending? That, you, that That's a signal that you would say, okay, something's really going on here. Like one of the things that's really blowing our minds is, is um, what are called NFTs and uh, digital objects that you buy online that you can create or share online, unique objects that you buy, that you collect. And, you know, Nike, for example, have gotten involved in this uh, area recently. They've, they've put out a patent where you can design your own Nike running shoe. Nike will, will, will make that shoe for you at a personal level. So if you can imagine this, you can download it and, and, and you will own, by the way, that design yourself. So think about this, what this means for innovation and creativity. But also, if, if it trends on social, right, if you're an influencer, if you're the next Kanye West and this thing goes nuclear, right, Nike are going to keep a share of that, of that product, but they're also going to let you keep your share of what's called the NFT, the original digital object. So digital objects and buying digital avatars and characters and so on is just, I mean, this is very, yep. 
No, this is one area. I it's mean, fascinating I mean, because because I, I'm of the generation that looks at non-fungible tokens and just says, I don't get this. Well, there was that um, story but, during the week of uh, a big yacht that was sold on the in the metaverse for 650 grand. And all it is is a drawing. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, that's that's the bit I don't get at all about these NFTs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, like I said earlier, the signals appear, and usually extremophiles, right? People at the edge of culture are really go mad for it, right? So somebody, somebody bought a Louis Vuitton handbag that's a unique, only available one-off digital handbag, can't be used in the real world, and they spent thousands on it, right? That's an extremophile. A bag but that you can't put anything into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but a lot of signals. Signals are interesting because they don't have application built in, right? They're interesting, they're innovative, they're inventive. But where we come in is we, we bring application to it. So there is no application in my mind to extreme digital handbags, I suspect. Maybe I'm wrong, but I suspect that not. But when my kid, when my son, Evan, is 10 and he's in the car with his best friend, Joe, we're going through town and they're playing on the phone and they discover a Pokemon character on Pokemon Go that they go crazy for because they've captured it and it's worth something in the digital universe. And he's pestering me to buy another digital character. My Revolut pinging with him requesting for digital characters and avatars. I think there's something in that. I think it's a really strong trend. So, you know, during lockdown, uh, Gen Z flocked to online gaming and, and collective gaming culture and spending money on, you know, if, if you play FIFA, John, you know, or, or, or David, if you play FIFA, you can spend money on developing your team and playing the game and so on and getting investing in that culture, you know? So I, I, where does their money go? I guess they have so many opportunities to explore. It goes all over the place. And maybe, again, uh, spending all of your hard-earned money at the weekend, going to the ATM, the drink link, as we used to call it, and spending hundreds and hundreds at the drink link and then going, where does all my money go? Mm-hmm. I think it's it's refreshing to see that there's another way com- coming through. You know? And just just before we go, Viv, in terms of of if you're looking at next year, 2022, maybe 2023, and you're thinking of brands, you're thinking of marketing, what are you guys seeing as a trend that maybe will take us by surprise, will kind of blindside us, a trend that might emerge that we're kind of slightly aware of, but it becomes material over the next 12 to 24 months? One signal I'm interested in at the moment, we're all interested in our, in our team is Korea. So Korea is is really influential in culture right now. Yes, you would have seen in, you know Squid Game on on, on Netflix. Um, so Korea's been trending for a few years, right? So what we what we're always finding is the signal's already there and it's getting stronger. So we've been tracking Korea for quite some time, and Korean street food is really interesting. So in a material way, you know, it took a while for the Mexican trend that was happening for a decade to arrive in Dublin, but it did. And I think we should see what we're seeing in New York. Four or five of the top 20 restaurants in New York are Korean street food restaurants. So I think Korea is today what Japan was in the 80s, you know, and Korea is a 21st century Gen Z packaged Japan. It's very tuned into social media culture. It's incredibly um, cool, right? And Asia is trending anyway, as we know, economically in the world, its influence is growing. So Korea is the coolest influencer in that part of the world it's not surprising that it starts to transmit that that over here you know so but ireland ireland tends to lag a little bit even though this new generation are very tuned in they're they're globally tuned in through social and through online you know innovations like that tend to take a little while to get here now that's changing 
but I'm, I'm betting on a, a Korean street food eatery near, near you in the next couple of years. And I know that's a small signal, guys, but I, you know, we're not in the game of making you know, random predictions. I think amplifying signals and making something useful from those signals is the game we play. Vivian, can, can I just ask you about those signals and the data source? How do you differentiate between a signal, a real signal, and the noise? Yeah, like that's a great question, John. Um, so, so we we worked on the invention of White Claw Seltzer. So tell which, me, t- tell me what what is White Claw? Just as a lot of people might not know what White Claw is. So, so again, Gen Zers in your life will know what White Claw is. So White Claw arrived in Ireland a couple of years ago. Uh, we worked on the invention of it, I think, six years ago. It's it's called a hard seltzer in the United States, right? Which is basically sparkling water with alcohol. Now, now there's more to making it than that, but that's fundamentally what it is. And six years ago, uh, just to go back to John's question, we were working on a project for uh, Mark Anthony Brands, who, who have an office in Dublin, their innovation unit. And we do a project with them called Skunk Works, right? And, the, and what that project is, it's an innovation project. Uh, we do it every year, looking for signals, right? It's almost like a Hubble telescope pointed at a certain part of the galaxy that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. So what we find is signals either have three dimensions, uh, John, right? One is they're persistent over time. So uh, a signal has momentum. In White Claw's case, this thing around sparkling water beverages replacing fizzy sodas and fizzy drinks in the US was was really strong, okay? Yeah. So that was going on for years. Multiple data sources, right? This is the second way in which you review a signal. And this is, this is what we call robustus, right? So a signal is robust if the spreadsheet is telling you something, the people on the ground are telling you something, somebody's inventing something new and it's in that space. What we were finding was people inventing hard seltzers, alcohol with sparkling water for a healthy lifestyle generation. And one of the breakthrough moments in that project is, you know, because the data is quite granular for us, we were qualitative, we go in, we met the salespeople on the ground, we talked to customers, and there was this new brand that appeared on the scene in Boston called Spiked Seltzer. We picked up on that signal, it was quite, quite small, and we went down there, and you would not believe how goggle-eyed the trade people were, how startled the salespeople were. They were giving us three years' worth of information. Look at the growth. It's selling out. We can't keep it on the shelf. So in, in some ways, when we find signals like that, and we we're interested in seltzer, we're going, how come nobody's uh, jumping on this, you know? <laughs> you know, sometimes you find something that's so obvious. So momentum is important, robustness, multiple data sources. And the final thing is impact. What's the gap or the need? that this thing's going to plug, mm. right? And what we were finding on the ground, we knew this going in anyway, is that this new generation coming through that are looking for more to their weekend and to bigger experiences, they didn't want to drink and put on a ton of calories. Those people were drinking a dreadful product called Bud Light beer, right? Which is tasteless, mm-hmm. low calorie, you know, yeah. clear liquid I think nearly. the expression is pish. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I was hesitating to call it that. <laughs> that's what we would call it, uh, yeah, David, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, what people were doing with, with seltzer on the ground, non-alk seltzer, was mixing it with vodka and tequila and so on and making their own. So there was a need to be satisfied there, a gap, right? So those are the three things, right? So but I think there is a debit credit lifestyle in operation here. So, you know, how many withdrawals can I make from the bank of my, my health and so on? And how many, how many great experiences can I have? So beverages like hard seltzers, they're superb social lubricants that, you know, basically don't give you a great impact on calories and so on. And also taste good, taste way better than Bud Light uh, beer or pishwater, as you called it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, so it, it's easy to disrupt something that's, that's thought of that way. And it was the default. It was the number one beer in the United States, uncontested. Yeah. Like, it's kind of amazing, really. I so I think there are a lot of signals like that around to be, to be found. 
And are there other products that are, in your opinion, about to have that sort of trajectory? At the moment, I guess, things we're looking at is tequila soda actually is the new trend, I guess, where people are looking for more flavor and better made rather than just better for you. So tequila's got a lot going for it. Tequila's massive in the US, as you probably know. It's really, again, surprised me. It hasn't really hit here yet. But tequila's is... is, Too many bad experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is the thing, John. This is the thing. We, we, we didn't know tequila. We didn't drink tequila the right way. The, the premium tequila yeah. trend is all about, it's a plant-based product. The aging comes from the plants themselves, not from, from uh, uh, processes per se. Really premium tequilas are seen to have less impact on you in terms of hangover. They're incredibly uh, diverse and delicious compared to whiskey. It's, it's a remarkable category. So there has been a, a trend in flavored uh, tequila soda beverages rising what we need now is a is a a, a decent low alcohol wine because nobody yeah. has come up with that john and i are just going to be guiltily you know slumping towards new year's just eve filled it up there yeah, for yeah. me really thanks <laughs> just, um, hang out hang out with some gen z's you know gen yeah. z's don't want to hang with us this <laughs> <laughs> right. is that was great thank you so much great cheers Viv. cheers planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So there you go, Mark. Well, We're uh, going into a dry January. We're going into a What is interesting, what he was saying, though, is that all regulation and licensing aside, it's actually the younger generation that are kind of leading the way. You know, they don't have the same relationship with alcohol as, say, we did. And the old Irish thing of, ah, sure, aren't we great drinkers and all the rest. So I, I find that very encouraging and also really interesting. Well, I mean, it, this ain't going to be the only thing that's going to change because of uh, changing in attitude from a younger generation. Cultural norms change profoundly. The biggest one is smoking, right? Smoking is now, has fallen off the scale 
across societies, right? People, I mean, I know, I know you smoke your feckin' head off, but apart from you, John, keeping Silk of Purple alive, <laughs> you know, the massive change. Look, think about the change. Drink driving, that is a complete no-no, where it was acceptable when we were kids. Yes. Right? Yeah. Smoking indoors, everybody, even smoking in people's houses now, John, right? Totally unbelievable society change. One of the biggest ones on this issue, but I find extraordinary, is actually people picking up dog shite. This is an amazing social change, right? <laughs> if you had asked my alpha to pick up the dog oh, shite, like, there's no way, right? But now it's completely normal, right? So societies do change and they be, and behaviors change. But yeah. we need to take our licensing laws, which are deeply embedded in the Victorian view of the way in which people behave, and strangling the supplier of the drug called alcohol in order to try and eliminate alcohol. We know from the drugs trade, John, it doesn't matter how much you restrict supply. If people want to take drugs, they'll take drugs, as is the case. Of course, right? So why don't we do now the obvious thing? Say Ireland is an unbelievably young population for European standards. We have 19th century regulation. There is no nighttime economy. Now for the next six weeks, John, there is an opportunity to change regulation around licensing because the government is looking at it again. Let's shake it up. Happy New Year, boss. Cheers. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.